Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast with your hosts, Nate Thomas and Micah Winstead this week. Hello. What's up, man? Every time you're just like, hello. Well, I don't know what what's a good something to say. Hey, how you doing, Nate? What's going on? Hey, everybody. Well, that makes it sound like I haven't been with you for the last hour and a half already, yep. which I have, so I, don't, I already know how you're doing. Be chipper for once in your life. Oh, Nate, how are you today? There you go. Okay. Um, we're going to keep this intro short and sweet um, yep. as best we can because today's episode is decently long, but we've got a really good episode today. We've got Lindsey Thomas Jr., no relation to me as far as we know, um, with the National Deer Association, and he, we are going to talk about antler growth. Yeah, it's awesome. He, he gives us a lot of information from start to finish and everything in between and you know, yeah. go down a few rabbit holes, obviously, because that's what we do. I struggled when for like when we were going to try to do this episode i've had it on my list for a while right and then i thought you know it'd be a cool time like right before they shed their velvet uh-huh and this is going to come out right before that really happens in missouri and everybody kind of understands what their buck pretty much looks like now that they might be targeting if they they're using cameras and cool time to to learn about this subject i learned quite a bit yeah. that um i thought maybe was true but now it's kind of cool we talk about all kinds of stuff from injuries to, you know, what, uh, what you should do with mineral and if, how much it helps and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, check it out. Bases. We got two, uh, partners on today's show that we're going to discuss before we get into it. First one is Alps Outdoors. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, you got all your stuff as far as gear ready to go for hunt <laughs> season. It's right around the corner, but if not, and you need a pack or some type of, you know camping or something like that uh check out alps they uh have really good products um and we should be having another giveaway with them pretty soon too um Ooh, right what before ep- what deer ep- season what episode are we on um like 66 oh, i was gonna i was thinking we were getting close to 100 maybe we don't want to wait that long <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh and our second one today is huntworth yep huntworth camo um huge fan i've, I've really enjoyed my stuff i really have yeah and um, we're going to really put, put our Huntworth stuff to the test when we go to Colorado mm-hmm. in a few weeks. I'm excited about it. Though. I am too. And um, so you got time still to get your, your camo or whatever gear you want to get. Huntworth is nice, affordable stuff. Um, you can even save 15 more percent if you use the code MWW15 when you're checking out. Um, help yourself save 15%. But what I love about it is you don't even need that code. Right. It's I mean, pretty, it's, pretty it's no skin off our back if you use it or not anyways. And I'll, but, give, I'll give a little hint. This helps us out? None. This no. is probably definitely bad for us. But I was in Orsland's today. And if you go in, because Huntworth is in Orsland. So if you got an Orsland's around you, more than likely they got Huntworth as their camo. Uh, a lot of their stuff was still discounted. 
from you know they obviously do that every year so might want to go check out Orchlands. yeah it yeah, it's cheaper. not like we make any money off the uh, no. the mww15 anyway no. so yeah, we're not doing you know they we're they were gracious enough to give us that code yeah. to help our listeners yeah. so yeah um where you can find it and it's already cheap that's the cool part yep you get on their website pay full price okay a pair of pants is still 30 bucks you can get completely set up for under 600 bucks Totally set up. Totally. Like, totally. Like, base layer to outer jacket. To mid-season, to late season, yep. to rain gear. Yeah. Yeah. Gloves, hats, all the stuff that I don't ever buy because I'm too cheap to buy it. Right. That I'll just use that I've had laying around. Yep. Yeah. I use the same gloves that I've been... I've had the same pair of gloves, I think, for like six years. Mm-hmm. And they're just Remington gloves I found at Walmart. Right. And so, I wear them with every camo I ever have. Yeah. But well, not this no one, you can You can do that. So... <laughs> Anyways, those are our sponsors for today's show. We appreciate them being partners with our podcast. You got anything else? Nope. Let's get into it. Let's get into this show. I'm excited to to hear it. This is the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast. All right, with us tonight, we have Lindsey Thomas Jr. with the National Deer Alliance. Lindsey, how's it going, sir? It is going very well, Nate. How are you, cousin? <laughs> yeah, we've got to be related somehow, right? I mean, of course, there's there's only about four billion of us in this world, so yeah, we've, we're related somehow. <laughs> I claim any Thomas, especially a Thomas that hunts and hunts deer. So uh, I don't know it. if that's a great idea, but hey, I'll take it. <laughs> um. Thank you for coming on. We're excited about today's show. Um, we're basically going to talk about antlers, uh, essentially. I mean, this you know this episode is going to come out what around the tenth uh, or month. something August, around a month before season starts. Yeah, somewhere. and so obviously the deer in our area, at least, are getting really close to to shedding their velvet, and people are they know what deer are what they look like now for the most part and one of my favorite times of year honestly is when you you really know now who who the ones you want to go after are and who aren't especially if you're running trail cams so i thought it'd be a good episode to talk about antler growth but before we get into it why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners um tell them what you do for uh, national deer alliance and then um What's one of your favorite things of working for an organization like that? And we'll just go from there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Nate and Micah, thank y'all for having me on. I'm, I'm honored to be on the podcast with you guys and talking deer tonight. Um, so I'm Lindsey Thomas Jr. I am the chief communications officer for the National Deer Association. Um, and uh, what I do f- uh, in that role is our magazine, Quality White Tales, uh, I'm editor of that. And then my team produces our website, web content. The team produces the magazine as well. But um, but we are over that website, social media, email communications, uh, PR and media relations, all of that. Uh, my team, my communications team handles that. Um, I've been here almost 18 years. When I say here, I started with the Quality Deer Management Association in 2003 um, been working in their communications all that time. And then, as y'all know, last year, uh, we did a unification of QDMA with the National Deer Alliance and became the National Deer Association. Um, so, and QDMA had essentially created the Deer Alliance as an arm for many deer groups to handle policy and advocacy. So things 
uh, aligned last year that just made sense for us to unify and bring everything kind of under one roof. And that's really what it is, is everything QDMA used to do well, that the, the Deer Alliance was doing well, all under one roof called the National Deer Association. Not much else has changed. And I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that. Our mission is ensuring the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat and hunting. And it's a pretty simple mission that, you know, I'm passionate about personally. So yeah, I'm very proud as a communicator and journalist to be a member of this team and, and waking up every morning working to make uh, the future better for deer and for deer hunters. I mean, it's, it's hard to complain about a job like that. So yeah, I was that's what say, I do. I was going to say, one. Um, it's got to be pretty cool to have a job where you think about deer all the time. I mean, I, I could see myself never really getting tired of thinking about deer all the time. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I kind of do it already, so. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of a day where I haven't thought about deer, so. <laughs> One way, shape, or form, yeah. <laughs> so to do it for a living is is got to be kind of fun. I mean, I'm sure, just like any job, there's days where you want to pull your hair out, but um, still, got to be pretty cool. Yeah. Right? You know the saying, work is a four-letter word wherever you go, and um yeah, we have deadlines and we have stressful time periods and uh, workloads and, and, you know, working for a nonprofit, you know, you don't ever have enough money to do the things you'd love to be able to do because you've got to keep turning that back into the mission. Uh, um, so, sure, with any job, there are frustrations, but yeah, it's, it's um, um, very rewarding to do this work. Yeah, uh, is a good way to put it. And yeah, I do get to think about deer every day of the year. And um that's good for me because I was always passionate about deer, always wanted to learn more about deer and think about them every day, like a lot of other deer hunters. And so, yeah, it just, uh, you know, it's like the right glove for me. Yeah. So since you obviously work with deer all the time, are they pretty lenient when it comes to deer season? Do you get to take off quite a bit of time and get oh, out there a, in the field? Question. And yeah. How does that hunt <laughs> as much as you want? Or is it just like any other job you get your two weeks or whatever? You know, there's a little bit of flexibility being, you know, working for a deer organization. Um, all of us uh, get a little bit of that. But at the same time, you know, we still have deadlines that land in the middle of deer season. We have responsibilities weekly and daily. We, we put out a weekly newsletter and and uh, daily social media activity. And as you know, the highest peak interest time period for deer hunters is when it's right during the heart of deer season. Yeah. So we can't knock off and take off three months and go deer hunt and not do communications work. Things are happening. People are killing deer. People are asking us about things they're encountering. Things are, you know, folks are most interested at those, that time period, September, October, and November is the peak of interest in food plots and habitat and antler growth and, you know, managing deer, hunting deer, uh, eating venison, all of that. So, it's kind of, um, yeah, at times it's a conflict because we, like I said, we can't be off duty from right. our jobs. And, and it's the demand, highest uh, demand period for us to be on the ball and meeting deadlines uh, and, and being active and sharing what we, you know, helping folks uh, with what they want to know and sharing information. So don't get me wrong. We get our hunting in too. <laughs> um, you know, you get a magazine deadline done and the pressure's off for a little bit that's a good time to get out there. So, um, yeah, we, we definitely get our hunting in, you know, one of the things about us is that, um, we don't, a lot of people think that when you work in deer hunting like this, that you travel around, do a lot of great deer hunts. The truth is we're like your average deer hunter 
we hunt our own little places in our own little backyards, wherever we're able to find permission near where we live. And uh, some, you know, many of us hunt public land. And so, you know, we're, we're very much like your average deer hunter in that regard, in that we hunt when we can, where we can. Um, so yeah, you put in your, your eight to five hours, get the job done and uh, hit the woods in the evening, like a lot of other deer hunters. That's what I was going to say. All I really need is to knock off a little bit early and get that two or three hours in the evening. That's right. Yep. Um, now, before we get in the meat of today's subject, I do have one question. You are in Georgia, correct? That's right. Is I I know parts of the southeast, the rut is different than where we are, which is obviously in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your rut like where you are? Is it pretty, I guess you would call it normal, or do you have a later rut like uh, parts of the south do? I'm in Athens, Georgia, which is uh, North Georgia, mm-hmm. kind of Northeast Georgia, really east of Atlanta. And I'd say we have a normal rut. It's most of the Piedmont and upper Georgia is mid-November, early to mid-November, sometimes later November, like most of the country. But I'm from Southeast Georgia uh, near the coast. That's where uh, my family's land is. And I do a lot of my hunting down there too. And we are, uh, there we have an earlier rut. It's kind of a, like on the Atlantic coast and Gulf coast, um, it's more of a late October peak. Huh. Uh, but then in Southwest Georgia, we kind of get into some of that, you know, real late rut, like you see in Alabama and Mississippi into late December, even January, um, a little bit of that in Southwest Georgia, but yeah. So, um, it's interesting in that I can kind of go from the coast hunting a peak rut right at Halloween, the last week of October, back to North Georgia and still catch the peak rut here. And then, you know, if I wanted to run over and join friends in Alabama and catch a December or even January rut, it is, it's an interesting mix that we have down here. Uh, I've never done it, but uh, one of the guys that runs a podcast on our network is from Alabama and he travels for hunting. He goes all over to different public grounds and so he's in like Kentucky in early, early season. And when the rut hits, that dude is hunting the rut from the normal rut all the way through January. And you're just like, man, I feel like. It would just be, I mean, if you can get on them, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, never had that opportunity. I mean, I've only hunted whitetail in Missouri, so I don't know that. But um, that would be pretty cool. You know, the interesting thing is right now, as we speak, the rut is on in the southern tip of Florida in the Everglades. Uh, It actually, the peak of the rut started in late July. Their season, their bow season opened this past Saturday, and they're killing some great bucks down there right now. I've seen on social media, um, and they're in hard antler uh, already. So, yeah. Okay. um, How much can we get a Florida tag for? I'm getting ready to... (laughs) So. Lindsay, we didn't warn you about this before we started recording, but we we do like to go down rabbit holes. And I'm about to ask you a question that has nothing to do with antler growth. But why? What do you know? I mean, has has there been a lot of research in why there's why there's deer rutting in South Florida right now, and some deer don't rut till January? I mean, that's a huge spread. Um, so. You know, Yes, I can kind of answer it pretty quickly. The The basic framework here is deer rut uh, when it is best for the timing of fawns hitting the dirt the following spring. So that's why in most of the country, particularly in the north, it's in mid-November uh, because fawns need to hit the dirt at a certain time the following year when spring forage and nutrition is at its peak. As you go further south, it needs to be earlier because spring is earlier. 
But at the same time, as you get down, say, into Central America, Mexico, and closer to the equator, you have less of a harsh winter. Winter is not a survival factor for fawns. They don't have to reach a certain size to be able to survive winter. And so deer can literally breed year round and get away with it. So as you get further south, not only does it move earlier, but the, it spreads out more and more around the calendar of the entire year. They can, and literally deer in South America can breed any time of year and they do. Um, now in some places though, like the Florida Everglades, what's going on there is the annual typical flood season in the Everglades starts in late May to June. Uh, and so fawns have to be big enough in that area to survive living basically in a flooded area. So their rut has to be, again, that much earlier. It's, it's a different survival factor there in the Everglades that controls when the deer breed. They've got to be doing it right now so that the fawns can drop and have enough time to get big enough to survive next summer in the flood season in the Everglades. Isn't that crazy what Mother Nature yeah. does? And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that has something to do with um, just the overall size of deer, too. The further south you get, they obviously they just get smaller, don't they? Is that just mainly because they're not having to go through the winters that northern, northern parts do? Is that kind of similar? They do generally get smaller as you go further south. And, uh, for example, here in Georgia on our barrier islands, Coastal Barrier Islands are some of our smallest deer. And of course, you've got the key deer down in, the, in Florida and the Keys that are uh, very small. Um, so, yeah. And then, of course, you know, talking about that rut and how in Alabama and Mississippi and other areas you get into a January and even sometimes later rut, it's believed that that has more to do with restocking, with moving uh, deer genetics around during the restocking area, uh, restocking era bringing deer from different regions that had a certain trigger for when they should be breeding that was now by changing latitudes was now on a different calendar date. And so they were breeding at different times than where they came from. And because again, it was in the South where winter was not a controlling survival factor, you know, there was no control over those genetics to, to sort of tighten things back up to fall. And so they can still get away with it. They're breeding in, you know, January, even into February in some areas. Wow. That's cool. I mean, it's, it's cool how nature will find a way. I mean, they will survive if given the chance. And that's just, that's pretty cool. I mean, even here you've seen some, uh, I saw somewhere on Instagram today, I suck at remembering where I see things, but I saw a photo of a, a new fawn here in, in Missouri. And, uh, so that fawn had to be bred pretty late in the year uh, for her or him to, to just be really within a few weeks old. So, um, you know, even then, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're, they're going to do it if they can do it. And that's, that's, what's kind of cool. I, I've always read um, articles where, you know, a doe, if she doesn't get bred the first time will almost go back into heat. And, you know, you got those late, those late breedings. That's, um, where you see some of those younger fawns. That's right. Yeah, the breeding always sort of spans out in a, in a sort of bell curve where you have some early ones and some late ones and in most of them in kind of the average window. And that's that's probably what you're seeing there is one of those you know, late, uh, or again, perhaps like you said, a doe that wasn't bred on the first cycle that got bred the second time around. So yeah. running late, yeah. Okay, so sorry, go, we went off into a, a tangent. That's what we like to do. <laughs> that's um, good. But we're going to talk about antlers. This is the, my, like I said before, my favorite time. They, they are pretty well what they are going to be as far as their shape and size, and you can tell who's who. 
uh, bef- before we kind of get into some of the questions that we've come up with, why don't you give the listener real quick a, a basic rundown of how antler growth works? Um, you know, the more the more I read kind of preparing to talk to you, it's really crazy that, I mean, antler growth almost never stops if you really think about it. But um, why don't you kind of just start from, let's see, start from when a buck sheds his antlers and just come all the way back around and just give everybody a nice rundown of that. Okay. Yeah, it's it's an, an amazing, really miraculous process. Antlers are just uh, one of those miraculous inventions of nature that, that are fascinating to all of us. Uh, once you start learning, you know, I mean, it, it is literally the fastest growing bone tissue known in nature. Um, and to, to, to kind of take it from where you said, let's start with a buck who say has just shed his antlers. What happens, you know, you've kind of got a raw wound there on top, those pedicle bases, they're called pedicles, uh, which are the very specialized tissue on a buck skull that, that can grow antlers. And they're pretty raw, they're bloody even uh, for a few days and it kind of scabs over uh, and closes over with a special tissue. And really once that closes over, antler growth begins at the cellular level. Literally 10, 15 days after a buck has shed his antlers, he has started growing the next set of antlers already. It is a kind of a slow thing it's at the beginning and, and, and slow to get started. We often think, oh, well, it's, you know, it's really May or so before you start seeing bucks have antlers again, but it's beginning very shortly after they shed those antler, the last set. So like you said, it is almost a year round thing, the whole process. And what they do to grow those antlers is literally a form of osteoporosis, which, you know, among humans means loss of bone density, loss of bone minerals. That's a problem, but deer do it uh, naturally, they free up calcium, phosphorus, and other minerals in their skeleton that they've built up over their life and move, start mobilizing that into new bone growth at, uh, on their skull. And so the, the antlers begin growing. They are literally growing tissue with, uh, you know, a vascular network. Blood is flowing through that. As we know, crazy. Uh, they're soft. They can be, you know, damaged and injured as they grow. Um, and antlers grow from the tip. Uh, horns, which are permanent, of course, a- animals that have horns don't shed those. Uh, they grow from the base, but antlers grow from the tip. And that's why when you see a buck early in spring, you know, it'll be very heavy, thick bases, at least for an older buck the antler bases will be pretty thick because that's, that's literally the antler bases that are growing already. And it's growing from the tip and then you eventually get your, your beams and your tines and, and on to the point that we're at now where, you know, most of the whole rack has formed. And really that last month, it, the growth has ended and it's, and it's basically just mineralizing and hardening uh, from the inside out and uh, completing the process. Um, but it's, the fascinating thing to me is that, you know, deer do this every year. We know that bucks grow bigger antlers each year as they get older. They start with their smallest when they're younger and grow bigger sets. And part of that has to do with what I said about where it comes from. It's, it's not entirely the resources, the protein, the calcium, the phosphorus, the other minerals that go into that are not coming directly in through the buck's mouth to grow those antlers. They are coming from the skeleton. And so that's why a yearling buck, you know, can't produce a five and a half year old rack 
he didn't have the body, the skeletal size yet to accomplish that. So that's one reason bucks antlers get bigger each year. Um, I was reading a book the other day about this uh, called, uh, or about deer really, called Deer of the World, written by Valerius Geis. He passed away just a few weeks ago, actually. He's a retired professor in Canada. And um, so I, I picked up one of his books and was reading in it. And he made the point that antlers are really a luxury feature on an animal. I, I read that too, yeah. Yep. When you think about Africa and all of the animals that we hunt over there, the hoofed mammals that live there, um, they all have horns. And it's because, as, as Valerius said in his book, that dry grassland habitat cannot produce the amount of protein, calcium, phosphorus, and other minerals necessary for an animal to, to be able to grow a set of, of antlers like that every year and then throw them away. It takes those animals their entire lives to, to grow horns the size that you see on, on antelope and the cattle species and other things that are in Africa. And I'd never thought about it that way. And so whitetails are very fortunate to live in areas with abundant forage uh, and high quality minerals in most of the foods they eat. So a buck can you know, throw those antlers away every year and grow a new set. And that comes with a lot of advantages for the buck. If he breaks those, uh, he can get a new set next year. Um, and of course, allows him to grow a bigger set each year as he uh, uh, grows a bigger body. So that's the way it works. They spend the summer growing those antlers. Um, and interestingly, there's there's been some research here in the last year or so, actually in China, looking into horns and antlers and trying to understand them. And one thing they discovered about antler growth is it's actually, a, it's closer to the growth of bone cancer than to the growth of bone. Yeah. That's how it happens so fast, is that it's, it's like tumor growth in us or cancer growth. Uh, in humans, you know, when you have cancer, that can that can spread rapidly. That's what it's like. But deer have specialized genes that can control that growth, uh, that can shape, take essentially what is, you know, wild, wide open cancer growth and make it shape into a symmetrical rack of antlers like they need it to be shaped so that they can fight with them and, and do everything that they need to do with them. And it all works. And that's these researchers think that's part of the reason why deer, deer species have very, very, very low rates of cancer. They developed a gene that knows how to control cancer growth for the very purpose of growing antlers. Uh, so again, this is why researchers, particularly uh, human medical researchers are particularly interested in antler growth. There may be uh, secrets in antler growth that can help us deal with you know, cancer in humans. I read that same article, I think today is, I was going to bring that up. It's 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 almost like trying to reverse what a deer is doing in a human. They can, it's the fastest growing tumor basically there is, um, and they can control it. And if you could figure out a way to, to reverse that exact thing that they're doing for our cancer problems, uh, that would be pretty cool. I had one question. Yeah. I heard, uh, and I mainly just want to know this for my own benefit, I heard that the pedicle, right? That's what we call it, where the antler actually grows from, the pedicle? Yep. yep. I heard that if you took that off of its head and you put it anywhere on its body, it's still going to grow an antler. Is there any truth to that? That's true. Researchers have done that in, in years past, studying the basics of antler growth and how it worked, literally taking some of that uh, um, material, that specialized bone material in the skull, and moving it to different parts. 
you know, implanting it on say a deer's leg on the bone there, and you can get an antler to grow. Uh, it's not going to sprout up, sprout a beam with, you know, 10 points, but you'll get some antler growth at that location where you relocate that material. That's you can crazy. even see this sometimes in wild deer where they've suffered an injury of some kind or on the skull or around the antler bases that somehow stimulates some of that, uh, that pedicle material that's on the periphery of the main pedicles to sort of activate and begin growing bone. And you get either some, you know, sort of strange third bases or third beams almost, or just sometimes little, little buttons of antler growth in other places beside the two main bases. Is that is that always contributed to them getting injury? And the reason I ask, I got a a buddy of mine. He goes up north to this one area, and I feel like they've killed at least three that I would call a unicorn buck. They got three different deer, you know, different years, and they always got one growing out of their head in a third spot. You know, it's usually just a little guy, two, three inches or whatever. But is there, I guess they could have a gene or something in them too that would just have it where they have three of them, pinnacles or whatever. Pedicles. Pedicles. You were close. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose that's possible. I think it's unlikely that they'd have a gene for a third antler base just because it is so widespread and normal for a normal healthy buck to just have two bases. Right. You would rarely see that. And so many, you know, this is such a complicated process. It's very easy for things to go wrong. Um, Whether they injured those pedicles after they shed their antlers or while those antlers are growing, um, or sometimes even when they shed the antler, if, if an antler is knocked off too soon, a piece of the pedicle base may actually come off with the shed antler. You may have seen this when you pick up, a shed and, and the, the base actually has a little spike or, or you know, sticker a bone that seems extra. Well, that's actually some of the pedicle base that has come off and that can cause uh, malformations in, in future antler growth. So it's, it's such a delicate process that any kind of yeah, injury or you know, stress or, or other factors can sort of throw the process off. And this is where we get a lot of these questions about why does this deer have these weird antlers like this? And it's just, it's just very easy for it to happen like that. Um, again, I, I don't know in that case, Micah, you yep. know, if they're seeing enough for that in one area, it very well could be some kind of a genetic anomaly. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and just what you were saying, it's probably not a good idea to ever do shed traps then because it can actually cause issues. That's exactly why we recommend not doing that because a buck gets his antlers tangled in, you know, a shed trap because they came there for some bait He's not quite ready to shed and that gets torn off and yeah, break off a piece of the pedicle that can lead to a brain abscess uh, and an infection of the skull that, that eventually can kill the deer, but it also can just lead to, you know, malformation of the animal on that side the following year. So uh, yeah, we don't recommend those traps. Well, let's, let's just get right in. Since we're talking about injuries right now, let's talk more about injuries because I've I've got some interesting questions and it really is based around what I noticed with one deer that I was hunting for a few years. And this was a deer that I've talked about on our show before. Lindsay, I like to nickname my deer when I'm hunting them. And, uh, so there was a deer I had, um, that I had nicknamed sub zero. And this has been, uh, four years ago when I first started hunting him and he was a gorgeous eight pointer the first year never met up with him so he lived through that year and then the next year I would suspect he was five years old at the time he came back looking even better 
Um, and then about mid-July, he disappeared off of cameras for, let's say, two weeks, which was uncharacteristic for this deer. About two weeks later, he shows back up, um, has on his right side, about halfway between his G1 and G2 on his main beam, he was broken, totally off. And he looked like he was, I almost said sick, but I, I, I feel like maybe hit by something, maybe a car hit him or something. And he lived, and I actually saw him several times that year hunting and, and decided to let him live since he basically was half of a rack at that point. And then the next year, he came back and was just totally jacked up on that same right side um, from the year before. Uh, just looked like he had, oh goodness, like swords coming out of his of his head uh, on that side. And his, his left side continued to look the same as it had before. Injuries like that, do they, can they cause problems long-term for a, a buck where he really almost never recovers from it from an antler growth standpoint? Usually an injury to the, to just the antler mm-hmm. um, is not going to be something that's sort of memorized and reflected in future years. Um, and, you know, what happens is when it's broken like that, that usually uh, is the end of growth for that antler for that year, because like we said, it's growing from the tip. And the, the, so the growing part has been cut off. Uh, I've seen antlers that, you know, were damaged like that, but didn't quite break completely off and the blood flow was able to continue. And it might, the antler might've flopped over, but it continued to grow and just sort of eventually hardened and shed the velvet in sort of a strange shape later on. But usually that's not remembered. What often is remembered is any kind of skeletal injury. And so what I would say is, you, you said maybe he got hit by a car. I would suspect he got hit by a car is what I think right. probably happened to him. So if, say, for example, in, in the in the impact that, that broke his antler, he also, say, broke uh, a shoulder or a limb or something else like, you know, a leg, something else like that, ribs, whatever, any kind of skeletal injury. Um, those tend to show back up uh, in antler deformities. And strangely enough, often on, often on the opposite side, a buck breaks uh, its front left leg and that heals. And the next year, its right antler is misshapen. You know, going back to what we talked about, about how they literally move minerals out of their skeleton to form the antlers, there's clearly some kind of delicate neurological connection between antlers and, their, and the entire skeleton. So when they can become injured, you know, in their skeleton, some kind of, of bone break, and that is reflected in the antlers, clearly there's a connection there. There's, you know, something sympathetic going on. Broken legs and bones don't always lead to weird antlers, but often they do and often on the opposite side. Mm. So I would tend to think probably what he did was had some other injury in addition to breaking off that antler that caused the strange growth on the one side. And Um, he, the other thing that I noticed is the last year I saw him, the year I told you he had the, uh, the swords coming out of his right side, uh, his left side was worse looking than it was the prior year. And, and then he ended up disappearing. He, he didn't, I almost feel like he was such a tough deer that he lived as long as possible and made it through another year. And then ended up, I would guess dying during the rut or something where he was just done. Um, cause he, he almost looked sickly that last year I had photos of him as well. Yeah. So, you know, 
part of me thought he got hit in the rear end or something like that in the left side, healed the best he could, and just couldn't go. You any know, longer. finally, you know, Mother Nature was saying you're finished. And uh, but who knows? But it was interesting how I would have put him at six years old that last year I saw him, which would have been prime, like maybe the biggest he could ever be, and he almost went backwards, and then. I've never seen him since, so I would assume he's dead. But um, yeah. just curious because that was, a, that was an injury to the antler, like you said, not at the pedicle. Right. Yeah, more and more what we realize is that a buck with a really nice set of symmetrical antlers that look normal is a sign of a healthy deer. Um, things like stress, nutritional, injuries, diseases – any kind of stress like that in a buck's life during the antler growth phase or, you know, shortly before it or whatever uh, can ultimately be reflected in, in the antler growth. So a buck that's struggling to survive with some other stress is going to, you know, their body is going to try to deal with that first uh, and put off. Ant so antler growth can drop, you know, they might grow less inches when they normally would have continued up. Um, some, you know, with older bucks, you often get strange wavy sort of shapes with antlers. They start to kind of go downhill as well. So, yeah, in a buck in his prime that's healthy, that's where you're going to see really nice, typical symmetrical antlers. And when they start going wonky and weird or small, when you didn't expect them to for a certain age, that's, that's, a, that's a sign of, of trouble with the health. Now, usually, like you said, at about five to six years of age, that's when they're hitting 99 to 100 percent of their lifetime antler size potential on average. We know that from research. It goes from one and a half, where the, a buck is usually at about 30% of his lifetime antler size potential to two and a half where it's 60, three and a half uh, where it jumps up to 80, four and a half is 90, and five and a half is 100%. After that, it flattens out uh, and either goes downhill or can stay flat for a few years. But those really old bucks like that, uh, it's, it's, you never know for sure. They, people often ask me that after five to six years old, when they hit that sort of 100% lifetime antler max, typical, um, what happens after that? And it can be a number of things. Uh, they might drop 20 inches in a year. They might suddenly jump 20 inches in a year. You just never know. Most of them stay flat to slowly decline, but the research has shown that there are a few surprising uh, exceptions in those later years. Yeah. And then the other uh, deer, which I, I like that you're kind of explaining this because I, people just see broken antlers and they think, well, he's going to be messed up. Another deer that I had um, on camera, now this was last year, he was a deer that um, probably a three and a half year old deer, you know, maybe like 130 inch rack, good looking guy. Love he, potential. Yeah, he showed up on camera around the 25th of November. And actually, I have a gorgeous photo of it. He's looking right at the camera, and his his left antler is gone at the base, and he's bleeding uh, down, down his eye, you know. And that's way early for a deer to have lost or to have shed his antler um, in, you know, late November at that point. And it almost looked like it was probably from a you know a fight and it broke off. He got hit so hard or something. Now this year, he looks like you would think a four and a half year old buck would look on his his normal side, but now that side is just jacked like crazy cool. 
Um, I mean, really good. It's got like four different weird things coming out of it, but is that a deer that he'll probably be like that now for the rest of his life because he injured his pedicle most likely? Again, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. There are no, there's no 100% safe answer to that, that question, Nate. Um, even with leg injuries, it's hard to tell. Some severe leg injuries, I've seen cases where very clearly photography, you know, trail camera photos showed over multiple years that that buck was going to have a weird antler on that, you know, on the affected side for the rest of his life. It was not ever going to right itself. Um, and, and at the same time, you see deer that uh, there was a, a series we used for educational purposes a few years ago where a buck had an injured knee, had a, you, this, his knee was you know, swollen up almost softball size. And the year it happened, um, the, his antler growth went extremely weird. Well, you know, some people looked at that deer and said, oh, that's a cull buck. That, those antlers are weird. We need to shoot him and get him out of the herd. And the next year, he went back completely normal and enormous. So, you, in the, and yet you could still see this swollen knee. It's never 100% certain what's going to happen. Uh, and that's that's why we say, look, don't don't ever kill a deer just because he's got weird antlers and you think, well, he's never going to be normal again. You, you can't predict that. Um, so it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. Some cases, yeah, it's, it's always, it's not going to change year to year. And in other cases, they bounce back and go back to normal the following year. It's just hard to say what exactly, uh, it's just, there's no crystal ball for that. Well, and in that, in that example, let's say this deer, I just gave you an example of, he starts looking weird. So somebody thinks he's a coal buck. Well, his genetics could still be freakish. He just, he might've injured himself to the point where his, his rack may never be the same again, but that doesn't mean his genetics aren't really good. Um, and so you think he's a coal buck. Really? He's just like any other deer that had himself an unfortunate day, uh, one year maybe, but, um, yeah, th- those are interesting. Little... Know... Two things we know about that is, uh, Really, you cannot look at antlers and, and determine what you're looking at is, is genetics, it particularly, you know, anything that's messed up or anything that's, you know, weird on one side. That's not genetics. I mean, you know, do you have one large ear and one small ear? Uh, do you have a one blue eye and one green eye? No, you have, really cool, you, know, eye, you have eye color genetics. You have ear size genetics. You don't have one, you know, a 12 foot boot, a 12 size boot and a, and a size 10 boot. You know, everything's balanced. Deer don't have left and right antler genetics. They just have antler genetics. And so to look at one, a deer with a weird side and say that's genetics, that's incorrect. Um, and it, and yeah, like I said, at the same time, it's mostly injuries we see that, that cause those problems. Um, and at the same time, what we've also learned is that, you know, a buck with great antler genetics isn't necessarily passing those on and raising fawns that have the same great antler genetics. It doesn't work that way. The DNA studies have shown that as well. So, you, yeah, I don't even like to say the genetics word. It's not even something that yeah. hunters need to worry about. Yeah. Well, I've read, uh, we're getting off into a side <laughs> hill here again, but I've read a lot of articles about coaling, how it doesn't work because Do, I thought does carried most of the does carry genetics and yeah. how would you know? And, you know, uh, you coal a buck, he's, it doesn't matter because his genetics usually are spreading miles and miles away because younger deer usually move out. Um, and before, you know, it, I've, I've read a lot of stuff that, you know, has kind of made me think just like you were saying, but 
as a yeah, result, you were saying that deer have genetics for a right and a left side. This is this is what we're supposed to look like, and we're supposed to pretty much be symmetrical, uh, just like my eyeballs and my feet. Um, so the factors that contribute to oddities in the antlers or maybe non-typical forms are usually environment-based then, or almost always environment-based? Yeah, so uh, anything that's, yeah, weird, like one antler that's, that's misshapen or weird, that's usually going to be an injury. Now, things like, you know, some of the character factors, like heavy mass or lots of sticker points or, uh, you know, forked tines like a mule deer type thing, um, that is genetic. A lot of those characteristics are genetically carried by the buck, and, and you will often sometimes see those, you know, as a tendency in a certain area, uh, whether it's, you know, no brow tines or it is, uh, you know, you see tall racks that are very narrow racks, things like that. Those can be genetic characteristics. Um, but, you know, really the two factors that are most important when it comes down to antler size are the buck's age and then nutrition. Uh, those are the two things that play the biggest factor in antlers in your area. And, and most importantly, those are the two factors you can manipulate. You can let bucks get some age on them and you can help them have better nutrition. And then you, that's how you get bigger antlers. So let's on, on the age side, uh, obviously that makes a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of I think a lot of the stuff I read is between their fifth and seventh year is probably when you're going to see the the largest possibility of that particular buck. Getting Rob, into I, it hits. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like I was saying earlier, on average, if you average all the deer together, your average buck is going to hit 100 percent of his lifetime antler maximum potential at six and a half years of age, five and a half, he's about 99% and six and a half, it's a hundred. And that's the average buck. There are exceptions to that. There are bucks that, you know, uh, fall short of that or go beyond it or whatever, but, but that's the average. Now I would be remiss not to ask this question because I guarantee you 99% of our listeners either think about this or do it. And it's huge in our state, at least. I don't know what y'all do in Georgia as far as the rules and regulations, but here in Missouri, you can put out salt and mineral, and you could even feed them to a certain time. But uh, in certain counties, we sure. have CWD issues now where you can't. But in our right. county, you still are able to. What effect do you see? I mean, is it is it helpful to give a deer mineral, or is it something just that makes our, us feel better? Yeah, so just for our benefit. <laughs> I'll put it this way. It doesn't hurt anything unless you're, like you said, in an area with a disease concern where there's been a ban and you shouldn't do it because it's helping spread a disease like CWD if that's on the ground in that area. But in an area where disease is not a concern, it doesn't hurt anything. Deer certainly use it. They're attracted to use it. And so it's helpful for getting deer in front of cameras. Um, so yeah, it doesn't hurt anything, but in general, they get the minerals they need need from natural forages if those are abundant they're getting you know the, the right minerals in the right mix from their natural forage and browse from the soil um, and like we said before you know they're building that up in their skeleton and that's what leads to you know sort of allows antler growth to happen is saving up those minerals in, in the skeleton over a lifetime 
So yeah, people ask me, look, hey, it's summer, I'm gonna put out a mineral block. Well, I notice antler growth being bigger this year. No, you're not going to. You know, the, the things that are going into the antler growth of that buck this year are built up over a lifetime. And even beyond that, there's some research that shows the health of the, the buck's mother and even her mother plays into that buck's health and, and antler size and body size maximum for his entire life. There's some things you can do. And yes, nutrition will make a difference in that buck's lifetime. But for the most part, uh, last minute, you know, things like throwing a mineral block out or putting out some protein feed last minute are not going to make noticeable difference uh, in antler growth that year. So again, it doesn't hurt anything. They certainly will use it when you put it out there and it's a good way to get deer in front of cameras. But no, for the most part, uh, the, the research has been done on the forage that's out there and the mineral content of that, which is why we encourage habitat management and making sure you've got plenty of young forest uh, where you hunt because deer rely on that stuff 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. They're feeding and browsing on natural forages and browse, and that's where they get their most of their nutrition and, and the minerals are there if that food is there. So me spending as much time as I have on what exactly I should put in my, my mineral mix has <laughs> been probably a, waste a giant waste of time because, you know, whether I put two parts of – uh, salt and one part of dical or one part of trace mineral and two parts of salt probably is such a small uh, difference it makes that um, you're probably no different than just throwing out salt and moving on with your life um, type of deal. I, again, yeah, again, Nate, it does, you're not hurting anything. You know, if you pour pure calcium and phosphorus out there on the ground, nothing's going to touch it. Right. It's not, you know, that's what they need, but they don't, it's not, that's not what attracts them to eat it. It's the salt. Um, so the salt doesn't really contribute to anything on the health side of things. It's the element that attracts them to come and eat it. And therefore you mix in the calcium and the phosphorus and get it into them that way. Uh, same thing with the forage and browse that they're eating. You know, they're not attracted to eating something because it's got how calcium or how phosphorus. It's just naturally part of the forages and browses that they're eating when they're going for the protein level. Um, so again, it's not hurting anything to have those minerals and those other trace minerals in there and using some salt to get, to get it out there. They're using it. It ain't hurting them. Um, but it's not like, I guess what I'm saying is it's not like the deer are going to be suffering mineral, uh, deficiencies if you don't do that. Yeah. It's not like you're injecting, uh, steroids into them it, you're not you're not making that type of difference um you know it's it might help uh it's, it certainly can't hurt them um unless you're killing them all but um yeah i get it uh, and right. and based on kind of what you said earlier an antler is basically a, a, a buck is basically growing his antler 365 days a year i mean there's some sort of process going on with his antlers all the time so it's probably best just to continue to let them have their minerals you know a lot of people will go out in march or april and okay it's time to put out our mineral when really he could have been using it in january december november as well because uh, it's not really stopping at any time they generally use it more in spring and summer as you've probably seen and it's because 
that's when the forage has greater water content. So they've got more water going through their system. And as you know, you know, just like when you drink a lot of, a lot of water, you want to eat something salty. It's because when you're running a lot of water through your system, it's flushing minerals out of your body. Same with deer. And so they crave that salt. You put it out there in winter, they don't, they generally don't hit uh, mineral licks in the winter and fall. Again, that's the reason. Uh, their forage content doesn't doesn't contain as much water, um, but yeah, I mean it's there. There's been some good science on this and and how again what going back to what I said about a buck's you know lifetime. There was a good study here not too long ago in Texas looking at rainfall and the relationship of rainfall to antler growth because you know in the Southwest and and uh, Southern Texas rainfall is critical to the forage that's out there. And in a dry year, forage is really lacking and deer can suffer. And what they found was that in the year that a buck is born, his first year of life, you can look at the rainfall. And for every inch of rainfall that fell in the buck's first year of life, it equates to one half to one inch of extra antler on his head at year at age five and a half. Wow. So you know, that first year in a buck's life is critical, the nutrition he had then. This is why, you know, you come along and you got a hunting property, a new property, there's a five and a half year old buck out there and you throw a mineral block out. This is why it's not going to have probably a measurable, measurable impact immediately on what you see in the woods antler wise. You know, it is a lifetime of good nutrition and, and quality habitat. Uh, another study at Mississippi State that was done not too long ago where they took deer from the lower coastal plain of Mississippi, which is the poorest habitat in Mississippi and the general, generally the smallest deer and smallest antler size. They took some deer from that region. They put them in, in uh, at the deer lab at Mississippi State and um, raised them there and put them on 20% protein feed. They bred them with other deer from that same region. They didn't intermix them with other, you know, different regions and, and did this for a couple of generations. After two generations of deer, these deer were attaining body and antler sizes of deer in the Delta region of Mississippi, which is the best region. So it wasn't that they brought a deer in, started feeding it 20% protein, and the next year that deer itself was suddenly as big as a Delta deer. It took a full two generations of deer and good health among the does, good health among their offspring for all of that to feed into high quality body size and, and antler size in those deer. So again, going back to, you know, it's not an overnight fix. It is, it, it's a long-term thing um, in the life of a deer, making sure that they've got adequate nutrition every day of the year. So you go out there and you've got a new place to hunt and it's 500 acres of solid hard, hardwood forest with no understory. And there's nothing on the ground but shade and dead leaves. There's plenty of acorns out there in the fall and the deer eat those but the rest of the year, there's no browse, there's no forage, there's nothing to, for them to eat. And you put a mineral block on the ground out there in that situation, no, you're not doing anything. That's not having any impact. It's far more important that you manage that forest, open up some of those trees, get rid of some of the trees that aren't needed and get some sunlight on the ground and get some forage growing, plant some food plots if you need to, whatever. But you need to make sure there's something for a deer to eat uh, in the ground level, in the understory level, 365 days a year, to really maximize that any deer's potential, whether it's a doe's potential for fawn production or a buck's potential for body and antler size. So really what I'm kind of hearing is the three most important factors in a, a buck's antlers are, I would guess you would say his age is most important, genetics are there, and habitat 
a good nutrition. habitat nutrition is, yeah. you know, if you've got those three things, uh, genetics, we can't control really, you know, there's no way unless you got them in a pen, <laughs> but, um, age you can control and, and a good habitat you can control. Those are really more important than things like culling what you think is a bad deer and throwing out, you know, mineral, super mineral blocks and all those sorts of things. Um, Again, the mineral blocks don't hurt, you know, sure. it rounds things out, but it needs to be part of a comprehensive program, you know, of ensuring uh, quality nutrition all year long. Uh, and also that part of that means managing the deer density. If you've got so many deer out there that you see a browse line in the woods and you can't grow understory plants because they get whacked as soon as, you know, they sprout, you've got too many deer for the habitat that's out there. So shooting some does when you need to is part of the nutrition equation, part of making sure you've got the right number of deer on the landscape for the food that's out there. And when you do that, you're also making sure each deer has adequate nutrition all year long. So yes, age and nutrition, those are the two most important factors that you can manage. Genetics is important, it is. But the fact is none of us have a genetic problem. None of us have bad deer genetics where we hunt. There's no such thing. You just have genetics. And you're, you know, you can't do anything about it either anyway. Like you said, we cannot manage genetics in wild deer, period. End of story. No need to even tell you why not. Just follow, trust me, the science has been done many His times. His last name by, is Thomas. Trust him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's good science behind this. Researchers with a, uh, have spent years trying to make culling work, trying in Texas, where, you know, if anybody believes culling works, it's a Texan. And out there... They've tried with good science and, and uh, intensive uh, effort to make culling work and they've admitted they can't do it. It doesn't make a difference. So quit worrying about that. Manage the age and manage the nutrition. You know, start letting some bucks get beyond that, that year and a half of age uh, and you will start seeing better deer in the woods. You know, and moreover too, as you, if you don't have any adult bucks in the area and you start getting more of those, you're gonna have more fun. You're gonna see chasing you're going to see more scrapes in the woods and rubs in the woods. You get to see bucks fight each other. You'll hear vocalizations and grunting and all of those things that make a hunting a hunt so exciting. Uh, those come along when you've got a few adult bucks out there. So it's more than just, you know, trying to get great antlers. Um, it's about having a deer population that functions normally as it should. Yeah, that's good points. Okay. Um, I've got some other questions that kind of go off of topic, I guess. I mean, they're on topic, but not really stand with what you're saying but um two of them have to do with travel well velvet three of them actually do um do you have you ever seen correlation between are they sensitive at all when they're growing their antlers and have if they are sensitive and they they pay attention to to different things does it also affect their travel patterns in the early spring um, or do they just not care? You mean, are the antlers themselves sensitive? Yeah. Like, like, can a buck tell, I don't want stuff hitting my antler or, or do they just live their life? We don't know for sure. I've had a chance here at the university of Georgia. Uh, they have a, a deer lab with a captive deer area. And I've had the, the privilege to go out there before and photograph deer in a few years. They had some deer there that had been brought to them from, uh, they had been illegally raised by people and were uh, brought in by DNR to, to the research lab. So these deer would walk up and stand by you. And so I've had the chance to touch growing antlers in the summer. They're hot to the touch. 
Huh. I mean, it's really kind of strange. More than just body heat, they seem more warm than just normal body heat because blood is flowing through there. It's, it's, uh, the tissue is growing rapidly. We know that they grow about an inch every four days for an adult buck. Um, so that tissue is growing rapidly. The blood's flowing through there, and they're hot to the touch. But those bucks would let me touch their antlers and feel them. So I don't think that they're extremely sensitive. The one fact we do know is that in general, this time, or rather in the summer, before those antlers harden, when bucks spar with each other, they do it by flailing hooves. They stand on their hind legs and, and flail their hooves. They try not to engage with their antlers. Um, either they, they know somehow that those antlers are not ready for you know a, a, an out-and-out fight and they're protecting them, or like you said, perhaps they do feel uh, pain when those antlers are, you know, hit or scratched or whatever, considering that it is true skin tissue with hair follicles and everything and blood flowing through it. Um, I would imagine that, you know, yeah, I'm sure that they can feel with those antlers and, you know, understand that they don't really want to get them hurt. Huh. Now, whether that affects movement or not, um, I don't know. The facts that we know about summer buck movement is that bucks move the least during the summer of any time of the season, any time of year. Their home ranges contract. They use the smallest portion of their home range in summer as any uh, other season. And that doesn't begin to spread out again until they shed the velvet and the testosterone's rising and they're starting to get ready for the rut. They start covering more of their home range again. This time of year, they're really contracting into small spaces. Some good cover, some good food nearby and that's about all they need they're not going to go very far um so those are the things we know again whether that's got anything to do with them trying to protect their antlers uh, it's hard to answer that and then another dumbass question kind of i've always thought this i know there are no there are no dumbass questions oh. on, on beer just just you just wait. wait just you wait um <laughs> challenge accepted <laughs> i i don't even know how to explain this okay it's obvious that the more mature a buck is, the more dominant they seem to be. I, you know, I, I've seen three-and-a-half-year-olds whoop the shit out of a five-year-old before, but in general, the older they get, the more dominant they are, and they are the king of the jungle. Well, my question is, it's not like they have a mirror in the woods to see how big their antlers are. So, do they know how big they are? Or, I mean, how do they, how do they kind of figure out what that hierarchy is? Is it just because they know how old they are or can, can they tell how big their antler is? And now you can tell me if you think there's no such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> um, yeah, that one was pretty dumb. <laughs> God, no, I, I I'm going to hang a mirror on the, the woods next year. I don't think that's a dumb question. You know, I mean, there's a few things to unpack here. Do they kind of know how big they are? One of the things that's amazing to me when you when you watch deer and pay attention to bucks moving through the woods or going under a fence or anything else, it's very clear to me they are very cognizant of how big that bone is on their head. They know exactly how far it goes because look at look at them run through dense woods and dive under fences, under limbs, and and never get it tangled. They know exactly how big that bone is on their head. So yes, there is clearly I think some sense of of the parameters of the bone up there because they're not always tangling it on limbs and, you know, watch, watch videos sometimes of a buck. Uh, you see them every now and then like going under a, a bent barbed wire fence or something like that. 
and they don't they don't hang the antlers on it. They go just as low as they need to go to get the antlers underneath there. Well, they can't feel with that. It's hard bone. It is, uh, you know, the, the nerve, the blood flow has ended. That's that's solid bone. I'm sure they don't feel with it. But again, they've got a very good sense for the the extent of bone up there uh, based on what we see them, the way we see them behave. Now, whether that affects their the dominance, certainly it helps to have the bigger antlers. Certainly it helps to be a bigger body size and to be, be older. All of that feeds into the, the details, which they work this out in summer. That's one of the advantages of bachelor groups is that they work out the, the pecking order and the dominance hierarchy when they don't have antlers, they, they can kill each other with, when they sort of work it out other ways. Um, and so that, you know, that prevents a lot of unnecessarily de un unnecessary death among bucks, that they work out these pecking orders early. And fighting really is only for kind of the most serious encounters later on where two bucks really are either evenly matched or you have a strange buck come into the area or whatever. Um, so, but here's the thing we know. It is not all about antler size. Right. There's an attitude factor here too. Um, we all know that that you know there's some evidence that bucks that are either younger than another buck or have smaller antlers than another buck still come away bluffing the other off. Uh, so attitude and personality plays into this. You can have a very large body size buck and a, who has very large antlers, who's just on the the meek side who's, you know, more of a hermit, who doesn't travel and, and get around as much and participate in the rut as much. That happens. Uh, so personalities among bucks vary just like it does with antler size. So it's hard to answer that question and say, you know, this is the one factor that leads to determining which buck is more dominant than the other. Sometimes attitude matters. It's not always, yeah. but sometimes you do have a buck that travels more, breeds more, gets around more, and he's not the biggest and not the oldest in the area. It is sometimes attitude yeah we had a buck uh, on a property four or five years ago now that was probably like the fourth largest as far as his rack on that farm that we had on camera that year and he was obviously king of the king of the castle um he was a jerk you know you he would he would always push other deer around and he was he was obviously the the dominant one in the area but by far didn't have the largest rack he was okay but nothing crazy so what you're saying is yeah. they do have mirrors in, in the forest. <laughs> we just can't find them. Well, I mean, you ever look at a pond and say, there you go. Yeah, yep, there you they go. do have mirrors. There you go. They're, they're looking in the lake. That's right. Let me say something about that too, real quick, Nate, since you brought it up. Some hunters worry about that too much, about attitude. They worry about the buck that is sort of the bully or whatever, runs around and, and kicks everybody's butt, that he's going to chase other deer off. Um, there's no evidence to that. Bucks are not territorial they fight over a few limited local resources like a doe that's in estrus, you know, then they'll come into conflict or a persimmon tree that's dropping. And one bug decided that he didn't want the other bug feeding under there while he's there. Those kinds of things are what they, you know, will use sort of pull the dominance card and claim a resource like that, but they do not claim territories. Their home ranges overlap, their core areas overlap. We know this from a ton of studies using GPS tracking collars on these bucks, and we see them using the same areas. Um, one researcher put it to me one time in a, in a way I've always remembered. I thought it's a great explanation. He said, you know, you knew bullies when you were in high school. You didn't change high schools because there was a bully or two. You might have eaten lunch at a different time or eaten in the far corner of the lunchroom away from the bully, but you didn't change schools. 
and it's this works the same way for bucks. That's a great analogy. They are very loyal to their home ranges for very good reasons, very good survival reasons. They know where the resources are in their home range. They know how to escape in that home range from danger. Uh, they know, you know how to find does in that home range. They're not going to simply abandon that and run away because there's a, a buck in there who's more dominant than them. People worry about this too much. Oh, I need to shoot that buck because he's a bully. No, that's much like genetics. You cannot manage that with a trigger pull. You cannot yeah. manage buck personalities and attitude with your gun or your bow. So don't worry about that. It's just another cool thing uh, to get to witness. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, look at any buck and say, hey, is this the buck I, I want to kill? Forget about genetics. Forget about attitude. If he's a buck that makes you happy and the one you want to take home that day, that's what, what goes into that decision. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened there. It was, we still saw the other bucks. It's not like they left, like you were saying. He was just a dickhead. I mean, you could tell. Right. And he was actually the one that my brother-in-law really wanted to kill that year because of his personality. And unfortunately, he got killed by the neighbor. Um, but, you know, it was just, it was a cool deer because you could tell he was, had that personality. He was mean. He he had scars all over the place. You know, he liked to fight. He was like, you know, one of them guys, like you said, you grew up with that liked to get in fights and was mean and, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so as they're growing their their antlers, one thing I've noticed that I don't know pretty sure I have an idea what you're going to say, but you've seen a deer grow throughout the summer and obviously deer look a lot bigger when they're in velvet than they end up being when they go hard horned. But it seems to me like some deer keep a lot more of that mass than others. Um, some deer look like they're going to be good. And then they're just, once they shed their velvet, they're real spindly. Others, it almost looks like they barely lost anything from their velvet. Is that mostly just all nutrition and age, or is there anything else that contributes to why some keep that mass and some kind of seem like they just lose it all? It, no, mass is a factor of, again, age and nutrition, just like beam length, just like inside spread, time length, time count, all of those things that we measure, uh, I'll go into age and nutrition. Um, you know, a yearling buck has very small pedicle bases. He's not going to have the mass uh, of a five and a half year old because those pedicles themselves actually have to grow throughout his life to be big enough to support heavy antlers like that. So yeah, yearling buck, um, those, those pedicles are small. He's gonna have light mass until he gets older, until those pedicles get bigger. And then, you know, by the time he's five, six older, those pedicles are now big enough to support more bone to support the force that's involved when he rams those that rack against another buck's rack. Right. Um, so yeah, that takes time. It takes age. Uh, and yeah, it does take nutrition. Again, all the factors, the protein and the minerals that go into growing those antlers have to be in good supply for that deer to have heavy mass like that. And again, the genetics, um, genetics is a factor too there that he's got to have the genetics for mass that, that will help as well. All of those things combined. I think, Micah, aren't you the one who's like, I hate velvet pictures. Oh, I know. Because everybody thinks they're 200-inch deer. <laughs> yeah, their 200-inch deer turns into a 120 real fast sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I got a question on kind of on the velvet side, too. I've never personally seen a velvet deer while hunting. I know that people have obviously killed Well, and especially us. Yeah. September 15th. Yeah, we're September 15th day. season. But... I have heard of people in the state of Missouri actually killing in velvet, 
personally never seen it but if if somebody does is lucky enough to get their deer early enough where it's still got velvet what are some tips to maybe preserving it or you know until you can get it to a taxidermy do you know anything that would help to preserve it that way they don't have to you know rip it off or do whatever they got to do because they do have artificial velvet right a taxidermist can almost put it back if you and this it might up. not be necessarily but, your lane but you might know yeah it's not my lane i need to phone a friend i need to uh, <laughs> i need to phone kip adams who is our uh, uh chief conservation officer he's a wildlife biologist but he's also a taxidermist okay and uh he would know this answer we don't we're the same thing here in georgia we open in september by the time we're hunting most of our deer are hard antlered and uh yeah i've never seen or killed a buck in velvet and don't know you know i would just say be ready you know maybe if you think you're going to have that opportunity be on speed dial with your taxidermist go ahead and call them and ask them you know what, what they I say yeah. yeah yeah ask them and be you know again be ready to take that deer straight to them because uh, i'm sure that they have steps they can take to help preserve that if that's how you want to have the deer mounted you know some people also if they're kind of in that where the velvet's already peeling or you yeah. may want to strip it off. I don't know. But yeah, I've never had that opportunity. It's, I don't it's, know why you'd want to strip it off. I think that's some of the cool I, yeah. stuff if they got, and you can, every once in a while, you'll see them even later in the season. For whatever reason, some of it's just stuck on there. I just think that's just more character to yeah. it. I've heard yeah. it's a lifetime of maintenance if you kill a velvet animal or a velvet <laughs> deer mean, or whatever, just I would, because I it's, think so. it's not hard horned or hard antlers and yet. It's still, you know, kind of not quite there right. so it's i've it'd be cool to do it someday but like micah was saying our our season opens on september 15th but i've never seen a buck on the hoof still have velvet on him when i've been hunting that early um but there have been people that do get to to harvest them when they're still almost in full or full velvet so you know, and that brings up a good topic about antler growth is that you also get some of the real freaks that have velvet year round. Um, and what happens there, there's a lot of different things that go on there. Um, but testosterone is what drives the antler cycle. And a buck's testosterone levels going up and down throughout the year with, with the length of daylight. And that's what, you know, triggers antler growth. It's what triggers the hardening of antlers. It's what triggers the shedding of antlers. But if something happens, either a buck is born without fully developed testicles or his testicles are injured or there's a disease, a tumor, something, anything like that, that somehow blocks or interrupts the flow and production of testosterone, it literally interrupts the antler cycle wherever it is right then and it stops. And, and so uh, like a bug that's born without uh, normal testicles will just grow antlers and they never stop growing. And that's when you end up with these cactus bucks, you know, that's a very yeah. strange uh, growth. It's all in velvet and just keeps stays in velvet for the, for all their life because their testosterone cycle is not normal. Um, you have deer that are also born that are kind of a mix of male and female have some of both organs, but that neither one of them are truly fully developed male or female organs. And the same thing you'll, people will shoot a buck and look between the legs and see, you know, teats and think, you know, I got a doe and it does look like a doe, but internally it's actually got testicles as well. So there's all kind of weird things like that that happen. Uh, sometimes hermaphrodites and cactus bucks and all kinds of things that can end up with a deer that's always in velvet. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, I believe it was last season. Mm -hmm. uh, 
not too where not too far from where we uh grew up no uh a kid shot a i think it was a 13 point or, i mean it was a decent sized was deer was she a, a it was a state record it might have been maybe the biggest doe antler or, doe antler doe well, they called it an antler doe i don't know if they actually did an autopsy or whatever to find out if it had the other organs or whatnot but i mean it was pretty neat you yeah, know it was and, you know yeah. not driven by where he killed it you know a thousand times so that i thought that was kind of neat so well it takes the testosterone so if, if it externally what they saw was a doe um with the normal organs you would see on any doe but they were antlers that animal's getting testosterone from some source that a doe a, a normal doe would not normally be getting so probably if they did look inside they would find some excuse me some partially or fully formed testicles or something going on in there that's creating the flow of testosterone that caused that doe to grow antlers huh very neat that's i I didn't know that i just assume sometimes you had some weird stuff happen and does had testosterone running through their bodies and had antlers but yeah she was she was big yeah you can researchers have done this in the past studying this you can take a doe and give her testosterone make her grow antlers um you can take a deer, and, and again, this has been done years ago, uh, take a deer and put it in controlled light conditions where it's not exposed to daylight, but you control the day length through artificial lighting and uh, make it grow more than one set of antlers per year. Huh. Um, it's been, I think, up to three sets of antlers that they were able to make deer produce in, in a year by altering the light and making the buck think that it had gone through a full season in only four months. Um, wow. So, yeah. So, it's again, it's it's a very weird and delicate uh, mechanism that results in these antlers that we love, and it's strange things happen with it. That's Question, cool. with that study, did they notice any size difference, or were they pretty similar in size as far as antler, antler growth in that one year? That I don't know. I remember reading about this not too long ago. I, I don't think it commented on the antler size. What okay. they, they tried first by trying to make – a season's worth of day length fit into six months and they were able to make the deer grow two site, two sets of antlers in a year. Then they went to uh, uh, a four month cycle and were able to make it to go three, three sets. And I think when they finally went to a three month cycle, they were not able to get it to grow four sets of antlers in a year because it was just too little time to go through the whole cycle. And, and under that, the buck sort of defaulted to just, well, I'm just going to grow one set a year. Um, and went back to sort of default. Um, so I would think that, you know, the less time they were given this deer to grow these antlers, I'm sure that they were smaller. Okay. Uh, and also consider the fact that the deer's got to accumulate the resources to grow those antlers again <laughs> right. three months later. So, yeah, I don't, I don't imagine that these bucks were producing, you know, Boone and Crockett racks in four months. I'm just picturing in my head, like every week, just boop, boop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would think that... I would think the deer would be pretty worn out too. I mean, because if it's just constantly pushing that much through his body, I just think that that would just wear him out and he'd look pretty sick. Well, and like like I was reading, Lindsay said, it's a a luxury item. So everything else has to be going well. And then that is the item that kind of is your last thing, I guess, on the the hierarchy. So, you know, if you're sick as hell, you're probably not going to grow a very good rack. Yeah, uh, that's right. You know, so um, whatever EHD injuries, uh, parasite loads, um, all kinds of things, any kind of stress like that, uh, ultimately 
impacts, you know, the buck's potential annual growth. That's cool. Well, Lindsay, we, you got any more questions? No, I think, I mean, I, I, I could keep going on this for another two years. Probably, oh yeah. But, um, I thought this was a great episode to kind of get people real excited for them going hard horned. And, you know, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and really talking about it. I do want to do one thing before we go. So as our show's been going on for our listener, we do most of our shows through Zoom. And so we can see Lindsay. He can see us. So it makes it a little more personal. We can see each other. It's like we're in the same room, even though we're states away. And Lindsay has been taking drinks out of his cup, which is a Georgia Bulldogs <laughs> cup. So, Lindsay, I just want to show you this. All okay. right. M-I-Z. <laughs> we'll have to try to give you guys a game this year. It's We've had a rough oh. few years against you guys. So. Hey, are we are we playing Mizzou this year? I, I haven't even looked at the dang calendar. I need to. Check oh yeah, it. yeah, we're in a, we're in the East together. So yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. well, I don't know where we play yet. I can't remember, but I feel like it's in Columbia, Missouri. But um, yeah, I don't mind the Bulldogs, so I won't talk too much crap. But well, we'll yeah, we'll have to we we'll have to get uh, exchange cell numbers so we can text each other on that weekend. That might not be a good idea. I'm either going to be really. <laughs> I'm either going to be gloating really hard or really pissed off. So you probably shouldn't text me either way. <laughs> so, well, Lindsay, we really appreciate your time. Um, do you want to give anybody some 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 Links. information about where they can get a hold of the National Deer Association? Some ways they can get more involved. Um, just anything you want to do, kind of have your have at it. Yes, yes. Thank you, Nate. Um, we are a nonprofit organization. We can use your support. We work for deer 365 days a year. Uh, so you can go to deerassociation.com to learn more about us and our mission and our work. Uh, you can sign up for our free e-newsletter at deerassociation.com slash newsletter. We send that out weekly. Lots of great content about deer, uh, but also learn more about who we are as a nonprofit and the work we do. Certainly, of course, I would encourage anyone who would like to join us to, to support us financially. Uh, I'd appreciate that. Social media, you can find us on all the places at, at Deer Association, at Deer Association on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you're on those, follow us there as well to learn more. But I appreciate that opportunity for me to throw that in there. DeerAssociation.com, the National Deer Association, and uh, we'd appreciate your support. Awesome. Well, if uh, you don't have anything else, Micah, we will leave Lindsay alone. We started recording an hour later at his place than we did here. Yeah. So. It's about that uh, golden hour to get ready for bed. So we appreciate you hey. coming on with us and uh, talking about antler growth. And look, hopefully you I'll get to talk deer. Let's let's keep talking, man. You want to keep talking? I'll talk deer all night. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, it's just I'm going to stop recording. We'll start the next episode. We'll just do about yeah. twenty of them. But hopefully, so, you know, I see uh, you get some time to get out after you get the deadline uh, hit, and you can go hunting and see some pictures of uh, a deer. Um, holding some some hard antlers in your hands. Yeah, let's hope so. And and good luck to y'all too as you get ready for the season and uh, get your scouting done and trail cameras out and all that. And have fun with it. So good luck. I actually Thank think you. I'm gonna take a day off next week to do some work because I got four kids. I don't ever get anything done in the evenings. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, You'll thank you, sir. One day, I, I promise. So, all right. Thanks, Lindsay. Listen, guys, it's been fun. It's been great to meet you, Micah, Nate, both of y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you, you, sir. All righty. Thanks for everybody joining us on that one. Uh, a lot of good information in there. A lot of things that kind of, I don't know, 
they didn't disappoint me. I kind of knew they were true anyways as far as the mineral, you know, because everybody puts out mineral. That's what everybody does, and you think you're doing something. But Seriously, you know how much time we spent coming up with our quote-unquote formula? Well, that, was, that was you and Andy's deal. I never did that. I was always the, I'm going to buy what's discounted <laughs> over here. I'm going to buy a trophy rock. Or, you know, some granule or something. I never put as much effort into it as you guys. We put a lot of effort into it up front. It has definitely waned as we've moved on. Right. Like, I learned really quickly, um, there's certain things that if they get wet, they rot, and then it starts stinking. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was horrible. That was, what was that, three years ago? Something like that. But at this point, I'm like, why don't I just go buy a bag of salt and dump it and move on with my life? Yeah. But it was, Lindsay's full of information. Um, He, he. Writes a lot of articles, does a lot of stuff for deer, obviously works for the National Deer Association. So we appreciate him coming on and, and uh, giving his knowledge to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, lots, of good lots of good stuff. Like I said, antler growth is f- uh, fascinating to me, man. Oh, it's extremely fascinating. I mean, just if you think about it, they can go from nothing to a hundred and to 200 plus inches, however, whatever, in seven eight months you know yeah. it's ridiculous i mean they're definitely growers <laughs> is that a dad joke did i do a dad joke I or is that just nasty it was a little perverted okay well, that's just, fine. they do grow though yeah they grow it's not like i was <laughs> but anyways it's amazing i mean if yeah, you really think awesome. about what it is they do and elk and you know any animal mule deer that does this sort of deal yeah it's, it's crazy yep that it goes from gone to what it is in a matter of six months but it's never stopping mm-hmm. it's always a process that you know they're basically going going through since the day they're born yep so um really cool Lindsay gives us a lot of good info we appreciate him coming on we thank you guys for listening and unless you got more we're going to end today's show on a positive note